Hello, my name is Julia. Welcome to the third episode of the History Jar podcast. We're still on the P of no plan like yours to study history wisely. P stands for the Plantagenets. They ruled from 1154 until 1485. Fourteen of England's kings came from the family. Last time we looked at the Angevin monarchs, finishing with Henry III being crowned in 1216. With the death of King John and the reissue of Magna Carta, the First Barons' War came to a halt. There was the small matter of giving the French £7,000 to go away, but for the time being at least, there was peace. This was actually rather impressive, as there hadn't been a boy king since Ethelred the Unready. By 1234, Henry was king in his own right. He married Eleanor of Provence in Canterbury Cathedral, and she brought with her rather a lot of relatives, who turned out not to be very popular at court, or with the Londoners, because they got the pick of all the best jobs. And this, it turned out, was going to be one of Henry III's main problems. Two years later, Henry's sister Eleanor of Leicester, the youngest of King John's five legitimate children, married Simon de Montfort. Simon and Henry were good friends. Simon was an up-and-coming man at court, which was perhaps why Henry agreed to the marriage, which took place in secret. It did cause a bit of a scandal. Eleanor was England's most valuable bride, but she'd been married off to an ambitious Frenchman. There was also the matter of Eleanor having taken a previous vow of chastity, but this was smoothed over by Pope Innocent IV. Ultimately, though, Henry fell out with his sister and brother-in-law. Simon took out a loan um, and named Henry as the guarantor, without checking with the king that this would be okay first. Henry was the kind of king who liked to look like a king. He had a thing about comfort and luxury. He had a reputation for magnificence. He collected fine artworks, made sure that his chambers were painted with gold leaf paint, um, and he also collected jewels. Um, he built churches and encouraged the new orders of friars, the Dominicans and Franciscans, to come to England. What could possibly go wrong? Well, for a start, Henry had these aspirations, but unfortunately he didn't have the income to go with them. This didn't stop him coming up with a plan to regain the Angevin Empire of Henry II. And of course, that meant war, which in turn meant taxes. And that would have been fine if he'd won, but he didn't. Meanwhile, de Montfort, who had gone on crusade to get out of Henry's way, fought in France in Gascony with distinction, um, and this turned his reputation around. Henry actually gave him control of Gascony, um, but unfortunately that ended up with de Montfort on trial. De Montfort had started his rule in Gascony well enough, but then he'd started confiscating land, imprisoning people, and generally throwing his weight around. By the end of the trial, there was no mending the broken fences, and, of course, there were Henry's foreign favourites. He turned to them more and more often for advice. This left the English barons feeling rather put out. As if that wasn't bad enough, the harvest of 1257 failed, so of course prices went up, and then the Welsh revolted. To make matters even worse, if that was possible, Henry refused to accept the reality of the political and financial situation. Dan Jones describes him as delusional and a fantasist. So what you have in Henry III is the Walter Mitty of English monarchs. He decided, for instance, that his second son, Edmund, 
should be king of Sicily because Henry's own aunt Joan had once been queen of Sicily. It hadn't ended well for her, but never mind that. Now, what this actually meant was that whilst Henry couldn't pay for an army to control Gascony or to retake parts of the Angevin Empire, Henry became committed to conquering Sicily. He borrowed huge sums of money from the Pope um, and ultimately he didn't get very far at all with his schemes. So he ended up in debt financially and it would appear that he also managed to mortgage his soul to a certain extent. In 1258, Parliament was called in Westminster with a view to raising funds to alleviate Henry's problems. What actually happened was that the barons arrived with their sleeves rolled up and a completely different agenda. Henry was forced to accept the provisions of Oxford in 1258. This forced the king to accept a council of 15 members to advise him. There were nine more members nominated by Henry himself. Unfortunately, the barons couldn't agree amongst themselves for very long, and three years later, Henry was able to get rid of his council. Unfortunately, this had the effect of triggering the Second Barons' War. The Battle of Lewis followed in 1264. De Montfort arrived on the battlefield in a cart, having previously broken his leg. His army was significantly smaller than the Royal Army. There was a cavalry charge led by Prince Edward, who was 25 by that time. The prince and his men routed the untrained Londoners who stood opposite them, but they themselves weren't sufficiently disciplined to return to the battle. By the time they got back, the larger royal army had been defeated by de Montfort's rebels. Henry was now a puppet king, Queen Eleanor was sent into exile, and Prince Edward was sent off as a hostage to Hereford Castle. De Montfort now set about rewarding himself, which resulted in men like Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, changing sides. De Clare helped Prince Edward to escape from Hereford. Um, the second major battle of the 13th century on English soil took place on the 4th of August 1265 at Evesham. Edward's men outnumbered those of de Montfort's three to one. De Montfort was killed, Henry III was found and freed, but in reality, the real balance of power lay with Edward, who still managed to find time to take himself off on crusade. Edward became king, officially, on the 20th of November 1272. He was named by Henry III after Edward the Confessor. At six foot two inches, his nickname, given by the Scots, was Longshanks. He'd been married off to Eleanor of Castile whilst he was still a teenager. The arranged marriage turned out to be one of the medieval monarchy's love stories. Eleanor and Edward became virtually inseparable. They had four sons and eleven daughters. After Eleanor died... Edward had the so-called Eleanor Crosses built at every staging point where her coffin had rested on its journey from Harby in Nottinghamshire to its final resting place in Westminster Abbey. 
One of the first things that Edward did when he became king was to commission the so-called Hundred Rolls. Think of it as Edward I's doomsday book. He wanted to know the value of everything and indeed how much of the monarch's rights and liberties had been squirrelled away by various of his barons. He also set about reversing abuses. He was sending the message that he was a king who would sort out his own problems, thank you very much. Having done that, he assembled a very large army at Chester and declared war on Llewellyn the Last in 1277. Um, That's a bit of a spoiler for the outcome. There were actually 9,000 Welsh mercenaries in Edward's army. They were essential for Edward's victories over both the Welsh and the Scots because they introduced the longbow into the British military tactic. And you'll note we have a slightly different sounding arrow this week thanks to an email I received from John. So thank you, John, for an updated arrow sound. By 1278, he'd been sufficiently victorious to start a castle-building project. Edward's Welsh castles are sometimes described as a ring of iron. Um, They were certainly very modern in that they boasted a series of ringed walls and towers rather than the older Motton Bailey style. Edward seems to have contemplated going on crusade once again, but in Scotland between 1286 and 1290, there was the small problem of needing a king that everyone could agree upon. Alexander III of Scotland had been married to Edward's aunt, Margaret, but she died. Alexander had acquired a new bride and had been so keen to visit her in Fife, where she was staying, that he'd galloped off into the night from Edinburgh Castle and apparently straight over the edge of a cliff. And just so we're clear, when his body was found, it wasn't so much a cliff, so much as a rocky embankment. Anyway, the new monarch in Scotland was the maid of Norway, Alexander's granddaughter. She was supposed to marry Edward I's son, Edward of Carnarvon. But on her journey from Norway to Scotland, she was taken ill and died in Orkney. Probably she succumbed to some very bad food poisoning. There followed several rival claimants to the crown. Eventually, it was decided at Norham Castle that Edward should decide who should be king. Now, what this meant was that it effectively recognised Edward's overlordship of the Scottish crown, which didn't go down terribly well with an awful lot of Scots. Whilst the situation was brewing north of the border, problems were erupting in Gascony and the Welsh revolted. Edward's temper probably wasn't helped by the fact that his beloved wife had recently died. Edward simply became very belligerent. And let's face it, he was very good at being warlike. This had the unfortunate side effect of bringing about an alliance between the French and the Scots in 1296, the Old Alliance, which lasted for the next 365 years. And yes, you will be hearing more about it. Edward I was ageing, but still indomitable when he died in 1307 at Burr-by-Sands. He was on his way to war with the Scots once more. He even ordered on his deathbed that his bones should be boiled and that they should be carried at the head of the army into Scotland. Edward of Carnarvon, now Edward II, ignored his father's instructions, sent his father's body down to Westminster Abbey to be buried as soon as was decently possible, 
and summoned his royal bestie, Piers Gaveston, home from exile. Edward I had not been impressed with his eldest son, not least because young Edward hadn't shown much in the way of martial prowess. He had wanted to give his lands and titles to Piers, who really wasn't that noble, and also there was his hobby of ditch digging and thatching, and let's face it, these weren't the usual hobbies of medieval princes. Piers caused some raised eyebrows amongst the nobility, as did Edward II's coronation, where Piers stole the show um, with his costume, which was covered in pearls. Not only that, but Edward II took his oath in French rather than the more usual Latin. The biggest disaster, though, so far as Edward's barons were concerned, was the outcome of the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, which the English lost. Now, it wasn't polite to blame a king for his failures. Far better to blame his evil advisers and his favourites. So, with Piers, there was rather a lot of toing and froing, with him being exiled and then being allowed to return. But in 1311, he returned from exile for a third time, which turned out to be once too often, and he was hunted down and killed by Edward's own cousin, Thomas of Lancaster. Edward was not a happy man, and he ultimately got his revenge on Thomas in 1322 after the Battle of Borough Bridge, when Thomas was executed at Pontefract. It's always good to see a happy family. And yes, you will definitely be hearing more of that sound effect, particularly when we get to the reign of Henry VIII. Edward, meanwhile, found himself a new favourite in the form of Hugh Dispenser. Ultimately, Edward's wife, Isabella of France, who is sometimes described as a she-wolf, decided that enough was enough. Whilst on a family holiday to France with her young son, Edward, she decided that she wasn't going to return to England. Instead, she took one of Edward II's rebellious barons as a lover. Roger Mortimer had escaped from the Tower of London and fled to France some time earlier. Now, together with the excuse of young Edward, they arrived back in England and claimed the regency. Edward found himself incarcerated in Barclay Castle, where he's alleged to have had a very nasty accident with a red-hot poker. His tomb can be found in Gloucester Cathedral. Hugh Dispenser had a very nasty accident at the end of a rope, as indeed did his father. If you like conspiracy theories, there's an idea that Edward II was actually allowed to go three and that he isn't actually buried in Gloucester Cathedral at all. Um, Presumably he went off to continental Europe to thatch or dig ditches to his heart's content. Edward II's reign was undoubtedly a bit of a disaster, particularly if you lived in Northumberland or Yorkshire, as you found that you were probably being invaded by marauding Scots for quite a lot of the time. Edward III, on the other hand, having toppled Roger Mortimer and his mother from power in 1330, ruled for 50 years. He'd married Philippa of Haino in York Minster on the 24th of January 1328, when he was just 18. The Minster was unfinished, there was no roof, and there was a snowstorm. Um, Later on, 
he declared himself heir to the French throne, despite the fact that the French have a Salic law which prevents female descendants from making a claim. Thus, he triggered the Hundred Years' War. He reigned during the successful part of the war with victories at Cressy and Poitiers, thanks to those Welsh longbowmen. He also created the Order of the Garter, and it was during this reign that a certain Geoffrey Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales. Geoffrey was Catherine Swinford's brother-in-law, and Catherine Swinford was Edward III's daughter-in-law. Like his grandfather, Edward III seems to have been devoted to his wife. Not the normal Plantagenet response at all. It should also be noted that Edward III didn't have any massive fallings out with his sons either. However, when Philippa became very ill, he took Alice Perez as his mistress. She went on to become very wealthy indeed. The St Albans Chronicle, written by Thomas Walsingham, describes her as an impudent harlot of low birth. Walsingham, to be fair, wasn't a fan of Edward III, his court, or indeed of Edward's sons. One of the main problems for everyone else was that Alice held power over the king, who listened to her opinions. Alice, however, could see which way the wind was blowing. In 1375, two years before Edward's death, Alice secretly got married to Sir William Windsor. In 1376, she was banished by the good parliament, but John of Gaunt undid much of its reforms and allowed Alice to return to the king's side, and indeed to regain some of the lands which Parliament had confiscated. It has to be said that John of Gaunt was not very popular, especially when he called the so-called Bad Parliament in 1377, which removed everything that the so-called Good Parliament had agreed from the law books. The major event of Edward III's reign turns out to be rather topical at the moment. I am, of course, talking about the Black Death, which first arrived in England in 1348. Potentially, it killed 50% of the English population and up to 60% of Europe's population. Certainly, there are plenty of accounts of mass graves and deserted village. Trade routes from China carried the plague to Dorset in July 1348. The following year, it arrived in Wales and by 1350, it was in Scotland. It led to a shortage of labour, which in turn led to a rise in wages and the decline of the feudal system. People were now able to leave the villages and the land that they were tied to because they were lured away by other landowners who needed men to work their land. In 1351, the Statute of Labourers tried to set wages to pre-plague levels, but ultimately it wasn't very effective. Historians have argued that in addition to leading to the end of the feudal system and, of course, to the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, the plague gave rise to England's first Protestants, the Lollards, who used an English version of the Bible. To lull is a verb that simply means to mumble. So they were called lollards because they mumbled and muttered their way through their reading, all of which was very heretical because it was in English. Um, at that point in time, everyone read out loud. Reading silently in your head was a bit of a party piece. Geoffrey Chaucer read silently without moving his lips, and he used to get visitors who used to pop around just to watch him reading silently to himself. 
demonstrating very clearly that television hadn't yet been invented. And just so you know, um, historians aren't totally sure why the plague epidemic of 1665 was the last major outbreak in England. One theory is that we got rather good at quarantining people. Um, the infected were obviously shut up inside their own homes and large red crosses painted on their front doors, whilst the uninfected remained at home and only went out if they needed to, which of course means that they did not gather in large numbers in well-known beauty spots. And presumably they then didn't pee in the streets. Oh, hang on, they probably did. Which brings me to the other point. Historians also think that um, people got rather more hygienic. But that just goes to show you can't be right about everything all the time. We're going to be meeting Edward Third Sons over the next couple of podcasts. But today it's enough to mention the two who are probably most famous. Edward of Woodstock, that's the Black Prince to you and me, is famous because of his military victories. In England, he is remembered as the flower of chivalry. In France, oddly enough, he is remembered for his brutality and the massacres that he ordered. He died probably from dysentery in 1376 and is buried in Canterbury Cathedral. The other of Edward's sons to leave a lasting mark on popular history is John of Gaunt. Not because of his political involvement in the ruling of England during the reign of his nephew Richard II, but because of his relationship with Catherine Swinford. Having married once for wealth, secondly for a crown, John married for the last time to his long-time mistress for love. And their children, the Beauforts, went on to provide the heirs to the Lancastrian crown. When Edward died in June 1377, he was succeeded by his grandson by the Black Prince, Richard of Bordeaux, who now became Richard II. In 1377, Richard II was just 10 years old. Enter the royal uncles, John of Gaunt and Thomas of Woodstock. Parliament and the Commons were a bit bothered by John of Gaunt. He had all the arrogance of the Plantagenets and they thought that he rather fancied himself as king. Um, The payback for this outlook was that during the Peasants' Revolt, his London residence, the Savoy, was burnt to the ground with some drunken peasants still in the cellar having worked their way through the Duke's wine. The thing is that wars cost money. Three poll taxes were levied between 1377 and 1381. A poll tax simply means a head tax. So if you had a large family, didn't matter how poor you were, there was a large tax to pay. So a peasant army arrived at Blackheath in 1381. Um, they'd encountered um, Richard II's mother, Joan of Kent, on her way home from Canterbury. She'd emerged unscathed. The same cannot be said for London, which smouldered for days. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon of Sudbury, and the Lord Treasurer, Robert Hales, both of whom were murdered by the rebels. Um, What can I say? By then, Richard was 14, and it was he who went to meet the rebels at Mile End on the 14th of June, and he promised them that, that their issues would be addressed. He met Watt Tyler again the following day at Smithfield, and again promised that their demands would be met. But Watt didn't believe the king. There was a bit of a scuffle, and then the London mayor took matters into his own hands and killed Tyler. Um, It all got rather tense, 
until Richard waded in, calling out that the mob should follow him because he was their captain. He granted clemency to everyone and sent them home. Unfortunately, of course, he swiftly changed his mind and revoked everything he'd promised. He, he was very definitely an absolutist kind of monarch. He actually introduced the concept of your majesty into royal proceedings. And he also made all the nobility kneel in his presence and back out of a room when they were leaving. In 1382, he married Anne of Bohemia, whom he adored. When she died from plague in 1394, he ordered that the palace where she died should be destroyed, which was unfortunate because he'd only just finished building it. Greenwich Palace stands on or near its site. She was actually unusual for the time because it had a flushing toilet of all things. In the 1390s, Richard also legislated, legislated, legislated against Londoners dumping the contents of their chamber pots wherever they wanted. He wasn't keen on the population as a whole throwing their waste into ditches, rivers or waters. Put simply, Richard simply didn't live up to his early promise of leadership. Richard's fastidiousness was also supposed to have extended to the way that people blew their noses. I really do hope that you're not eating at this point. Up until Richard's reign, the preferred method of clearing your nose was to sniff and then spit into the rushes on the floor, because that was the polite thing to do. Richard is supposed to have made it fashionable to carry a piece of cloth to wipe and clean your nose with. He was also held responsible for the arrival of the fashion of the curly shoe, which had to be secured to the shins with chains so that their fashionable wearers, both men and women, didn't fall over their own footwear. There's an English poem dating from 1388 complaining that men couldn't even kneel to say their prayers because the toes of their shoes were too long. For those of you who think that pointy curly shoes are the way forward, you will not only need the chain to ensure that the toes of of your shoes don't trip you up but you will also need some moss to stuff the fabric with to create the right shape. Richard also bathed regularly, had his own library of books which he took with him wherever he went and together with making the nobility kneel in front of him and calling him your majesty he really wasn't a very popular man by the end of his reign. As if all that bowing and scraping and washing wasn't bad enough Richard also tried to bring the Hundred Years War to an end when he got married to Isabel of France. Um, that didn't go down very well with the nobles nor for that matter did the fact that Richard didn't rely on the nobles who thought they should be relied on. So five men accused Richard's favourites of giving him bad advice. And they didn't do this in private, they did it in par Parliament. As a consequence, they became known as the Lords Appellant. There were five Lords Appellant. The three primary ones were Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, who was, of course, Richard's uncle. Richard Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, who was another family member, and Thomas Beecham, Earl of Warwick. Basically, um, they got on their high horses and said that Richard was receiving bad advice, but they were actually quite resentful of the fact that Richard hadn't chosen them to be his advisers. They couldn't attack the king himself, so they attacked the Earl of Suffolk, Michael de la Pole, um, the Earl of Oxford, um, Robert de Vere, the Chief Justice and the ex-mayor of London, who was a friend of Richard. 
It all got a bit out of hand. Bremba, the ex-Lord Mayor of London, was executed. He'd stayed in London protesting his innocence. Meanwhile, Richard had sent the Earl of Oxford, de Vere, to gather an army in his defence. Um, when the Lord's Appellant found out about it, they put an army together and met de Vere at Radcote Bridge in Oxfordshire. Um, at the end of the Battle of Radcote Bridge, which was more of a skirmish, de Vere escaped by taking his horse for a swim in the Thames in full armour and then fleeing abroad. Um, the Parliament that campaigned against the King's supporters was known as the Merciless Parliament because it executed eight of Richard's supporters simply because they were Richard's friends. One of the reasons that the Lord Appellants got away with their behaviour was because John of Gaunt had been encouraged to go to Spain to try and claim the crown, which he had acquired through his second marriage to Constance of Castile. He was unsuccessful in that claim, um, but when he returned, order was also restored. Richard was eventually forced to forgive and forget the fact that the Lord's Appellant had removed power from him. Um, he gradually restored royal authority um, and he also quietly kitted out um, his own private army um, because he was the Earl of Chester. He describes himself as the Prince of Chester. His private army was comprised of a company of Cheshire bowmen who were regarded as the best in the country. Richard rewarded them for their loyalty and pardoned them if they got a bit carried away and murdered the odd person. On one occasion, they even surrounded a trial that was being held in Westminster Hall until the jury arrived at the right result. Um, for the next eight years, there was peace, thanks, of course, to the Cheshire Bowman and the fact that John had gone to come home. When Richard married Isabella of France and effectively ended the Hundred Years' War, it gave him an opportunity to have a successful campaign in Ireland. Uh, at that point, he felt that he had regained sufficient dominance to take his revenge on the Lord's Appellant. He had three of them arrested, Gloucester, his uncle, Arundel and Warwick. Arundel was given a trial um, and then sentenced to death. Um, Thomas of Gloucester, meanwhile, was arrested and taken to Calais, where a mattress mysteriously fell on top of him and he suffocated. Um, other than that, um, the other former appellants, Henry Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby, and Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, were elevated to dukedoms. Historians refer to the Ducetti, um, which is not some form of motorbike. It's the fact that Richard II appointed many dukes at this time. Lots of them were part of his extended family through Joan of Kent, his half-brothers and their families. But of course, they weren't as powerful as John of Gaunt and they weren't as loyal as John of Gaunt. Now, Thomas Mowbray wasn't an idiot. He became concerned that Richard was simply biding his time until such point that he could get his revenge on Henry and Thomas. And he tried to have that conversation with Henry Bolingbroke, um, but Henry reported it to the king, and then there was a trial by combat, except there wasn't. It was dramatically halted at the last minute. Mowbray was banished for life, and Bolingbroke was banished for ten years on account of the fact that he was John of Gaunt's son, and Richard didn't want to offend John. Unfortunately, on the 3rd of February 1399, John of Gaunt died. 
Richard now changed the banishment of Bolingbroke from one of a decade to that of life. He also confiscated the exceedingly wealthy Dukedom of Lancaster. And what did he have to worry about? He held a virtual monopoly on power and Henry Bolingbroke's son, another Henry, was a hostage at Richard II's court. Richard felt sufficiently safe to take himself off to Ireland, which was unfortunate because in June 1399, Henry of Bolingbroke arrived at Ravenspur in Yorkshire, saying that he'd just nipped home to reclaim the Dukedom of Lancaster. Henry Percy, the first Earl of Northumberland, had his own doubts about the king, so let Bolingbroke move south to reclaim the duchy. There was very little resistance. Richard eventually made his way back to England, eventually travelling to Conway Castle on foot, where he was told he would have to hand over the crown to his cousin, which he did on the 19th of August at Flint Castle. Inevitably, not everybody was happy with the change in regime, specifically the Duchetti, who were now forced to give back the lands of Lancaster, which Richard had been given out to his favourites. Richard was himself packed off to Pontefract Castle, where he starved to death. Shakespeare paints Richard as a cruel and vindictive king, but then the Lancastrians and the Tudors descended from John of Gaunt and the Lancastrians, so they would have to say that Richard II was a cruel and tyrannical king to justify their usurpation of the throne. Handily, Richard was toppled from power just as the 15th century started, so now is a good time to stop. So we shall be starting the next podcast with a king who was reported to be leprous by his enemies and who didn't sleep easily with his new crown on his head because there were so many plots and rebellions against him. We shall also be encountering all of Edward III's sons because we need to know who they are in order to understand the battles that were waged between the Lancastrians and the Yorkists. Well, we're nearly at the end of today's podcast. There's just time to to ask how your reading is going. My emergency pile of books is dwindling quite rapidly now. If you want to find out about John of Gaunt's love affair with Catherine Swinford, then Anya Seaton's novel Catherine Stands the Test of Time, or else there's Anne O'Brien's novel entitled The Scandalous Duchess. The Shadow Queen is also by Anne O'Brien, and that's about Joan of Kent, the Black Prince's scandalous wife, who managed to get herself bigamously married to William Montagu in the absence of her first husband, Thomas Holland. You might also enjoy The King's Sister, which is about Elizabeth of Lancaster. To be honest, I love Anne O'Brien's novels. She's definitely a worthy successor to Jean Plady. Alice Perez is the main protagonist in Venora Bennett's novel The People's Queen, though I preferred her first novel featuring the mistress of Richard, Duke of Gloucester. If you can get hold of them, the story of the Earls and Dukes of Northumberland by Carol Wensby-Scott are a really good read. The first in the Percy saga is called The Lion of Anik, and it covers the period between 1357 and 1409. If you want a bit more pandemic in your life right now, then I heartily recommend Minette Walters' novels, The Last Hours, and its sequel, The Turn of Midnight. They they really are page turners. 
I've not really covered the Scottish Wars of Independence. I've just mentioned them in passing almost. Um, But if you are interested in the period, then Robert Lowe's books, there's a trilogy of them about Robert Bruce. The first one is called The Lion Wakes. The second is The Lion at Bay. And the third is The Lion Rampant. Um, They're not for fans of Jean Plady. I've actually just started reading David Gilman's series, Master of War, um, which is about the Hundred Years' War, and its protagonist, Thomas Blackstone, who is um, a village boy who is rather good with the longbow. And that probably is my opportunity to do this for one of the final times. If non-fiction is more your thing, then... Dan Jones is a must-have. The Plantagenet should be on everyone's bookshelf. Um, There are more and more books that are available about the period. Penny Lorne's book about Joan of Kent is the story of the first Princess of Wales. Anthony Goodman's John of Gaunt um, is the academic text on the princely power of John of Gaunt um, and his political machinations. Catherine Warner writes extensively about Isabella of France um, and there's a new book out that's on my pile that I'm nearly there by Kelsey Wilson Lee, Daughters of Chivalry, The Forgotten Children of Edward I, all those daughters if you recall. And then of course there's Alison Weir and her biography of Catherine Swinford. Well, that's just a small selection of historical texts from my bookshelf. I'm sure that you can think of many others. I hope you've all had a good couple of weeks and we will meet again to start on the Lancastrian monarchs with Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI and, of course, the problems of the Cousins' War. Take care of yourselves. Bye for now.